0: This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 426. Hi, I'm James Whitaker, author of Think and Grow Rich, The Legacy. Your legacy journey starts right here. It's the Read to Lead podcast with my good friend, Jeff Brown. It's been named one of 10 must-read career and leadership books for 2022 by Forbes, and it's the ultimate guide to the essentials of strategy and management from one of the world's top business thinkers. And he's our guest on the show today. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown. This is the Read to Lead podcast, a podcast dedicated to your personal and your professional growth. I'm so glad that you're here. I think today's episode is going to be well worth your while. Roger Martin making a return visit. I grew up uh, down the street from a guy named Roger Martin. This is not the same Roger Martin but he's just as likable as that senior who drove me to marching band practice in the summer of 1982. I wonder if this Roger Martin plays tuba. Hmm. Anyway, uh, Roger has written a book called A New Way to Think, Your Guide to Superior Management Effectiveness. That's not easy to say. That really enunciated. I'll be asking Roger, what's the most important thing leaders have to know about recruiting and retaining talent? His take on most MBA programs why he believes execution is not the key to a strategy's success, and lots more. You know, if I sound a little bit giddy today, it's in part because, uh, well, the day this is releasing, June 7th, 2022, is the kickoff of my first ever note-making mastery cohort, uh, formerly known as note-taking mastery. We're being a little bit more aspirational in our titles. We're not going to just learn how to take better notes. We're going to make better notes that help us in all sorts of ways, a plethora of ways in our lives, in our business. I have found more and more since releasing the Read to Lead book last fall that more people than I ever realized struggle with collecting or capturing notes effectively, uh, connecting newer notes with older notes, organizing those notes, contributing to those notes in their own words, distilling them down, and then creating new things from those notes. After all, why take them in the first place, right? So if those are things you identify with, well, I've got some good news and some bad news. The bad news is you won't be participating in this first ever cohort, but the good news is I'll be doing it again. And if you'd like to be on the notifications list, and be notified that's why we call it a notifications list the next time i offer it you can just go to read to lead slash list and put your first name and email address in the fields there and you'll get a notification when the next one comes around again that's read to lead slash list to get on the notifications list for the next note making mastery cohort coming very very soon <laughs> Roger Martin is professor of strategic management emeritus at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management, where he served as dean from 1998 to 2013. In 2017, Thinkers 50 named him the world's number one management thinker. He's published 12 books, now 13, including When More Is Not Better and Playing to Win. He's a trusted advisor to the CEOs of many global companies. That 13th book is his new one called A New Way to Think, Your Guide to Superior Management Effectiveness. Well, Roger, I am delighted to welcome you back for another uh, stint here on the Read to Lead Podcast. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you for having me back, Jeff. I remember last time fondly, and I'm looking forward to this. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Thank you very much. Well, I want to start off first by having you tell me about this, uh, this mystery person at the front of your book. Tell me about Marie-Louise. She is my beloved wife. Uh, so I
1: met her exactly, uh, 10 years ago and, uh, we fell in love and got married. We met at a wedding of a friend, unusual in that we were both from the bride's side, but We're from different circles of friends on the bride's side, so I hadn't met each other. And she's a a lawyer. And when I met her, she was general counsel for a container shipping leasing company out in San Francisco. And we ended up uh, deciding to move in together uh, in uh, Fort Lauderdale and get married.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, this being your 13th book and you've dedicated it to her, I want to believe this isn't the first time you've dedicated a book to her, or is it? Uh, no, it would be the second time. The second time, absolutely. It has been a great period of writing for me ever since I met Marie-Louise. She's my muse. Awesome. I did not dedicate my first book to my wife, though she's mentioned generously in the acknowledgments. I actually dedicated it to a former leader of mine and Seth Godin uh, together. So I've got to write a second book just so I can dedicate it to her, if nothing else. So. I think that would be
1: a very good idea,
0: <laughs> I got to get around to it. Well, when I think of all the books you've written, covering topics like strategy, uh, integrative thinking, uh, social innovation, et cetera, et cetera, I have to wonder, Roger, how this new book on, on new ways of thinking fits into your overall body of work. How would you How would you answer that question?
1: If you looked at everything I've written, Jeff, you would see that there is a, a theme about taking on an existing model and trying to help the person who's reading, understand that the reason they're experiencing some frustrations is that they have a model, they're using it, and it's not getting them the results they uh, they want. Mm. So that's a theme throughout my books. So if we go back, you mentioned a posable mind, right? Mm. It's the model that is in most people's heads is, gee, if I have a tough choice, it's the uh, you know, the devil in the deep blue sea, it's a rock and a hard place, et cetera, that the powerful managerial thing to do, the leaderly thing to do is to choose to just suck it up and say, this, this is just a tough situation and I'm going to take one or the other. And I suggest a different model because I noticed this from highly successful leaders. They take that as a, a little red flag that went up there and had it that says, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. I know you've been taught to be a decision maker, but this is one time to not make that decision. You've got to wait, think about it and come up with a better answer, because in some sense, the world is telling you that these answers aren't good enough. So that, that it, it goes all the way back to that uh, playing to win. Here's how most people think about strategy. It doesn't get them what they need. Here's mm. another different, better way to, uh, to think about strategy. And so that's the common theme. And it's what I care about doing most. Mm. I for some reason, viscerally, I hate to watch managers like I really like managers. <laughs> I think like they they have a really important job to do and I hate to see them using a model and then using it again, even though it doesn't work so well and again and again and again and typically interesting enough, they blame themselves for it. I don't think it's you know kind of a, a, at all unlike a a beaten spouse, right who says, I must have made him or her, whoever's doing the meeting, mad. It must have been what I was doing, right? Mm. Right. It's almost as though they blame themselves. Right. So a board will say Gee, you know, we've given the CEO lots of stock-based compensation because, of course, stock-based compensation aligned the interests of management with shareholders, and they're doing all this really strange stuff that's creating all sorts of volatility in the stock. Uh, it doesn't; they don't don't seem committed to the shareholder going up. But they, if you look at their options, they're really paying out really well for them because the stock went way, way down. We gave them some more options so they wouldn't quit. Uh, And then the stock went back up to the level it was before it went down. Oh, they got rich. The shareholders didn't. I guess guess we didn't design the stock-based compensation uh, right. I guess that was our fault. We should have used uh, deferred stock units or whatever. And I'm sitting there saying, no, no. It turns out that the fundamental theory behind this alignment of interest is completely flawed. Mm. Uh, And it doesn't matter how you design it you're not going to make it work. You need a different model entirely. Mm. So that's what I like doing most and care about uh, uh, most. And this book, essentially, is a compilation of a whole number of models, 14 of them, where I think it's in common, if not dominant use, it isn't doing what it's supposed to. So this is not an, a book that says what you're trying to do, I want to argue with I'm I'm saying, even if you just take what you're trying to do, and we accept you should try to do that, that, the model you're using to accomplish it ain't working. And I couldn't care less. And this is something that's never been the case, Jeff. I couldn't care less if 99 people out of 100 think uh, this is a great model. If it's wrong, it's wrong. And 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 I'm going to take it on. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the motivation. This comes from a long, a long way back.
0: You mentioned managers, managers, leaders, men and women listen to this show. Presidents, CEOs, uh, entrepreneurs, pastors who are struggling right now with recruiting and retaining talent. You know the so-called Great Resignation uh, continues. What's the most important piece of advice you would give them? What's the most important thing they have to know when it comes to recruiting and retaining talent?
1: There are two things I would I would say, Jeff, and they relate to two chapters of the book. For what for what it's worth, the first is the great resignation question, and the second is the talent question. So, on the great resignation, what these managers I think are not understanding well enough is the power of habit. Mm. So, it turns out that the subconscious we now know from all the brain science that's been going on in the last two decades, the subconscious wants nothing more than familiarity and comfort. That's what it it, it seeks. And that's a powerful driver. And so we think that we are motivated by loyalty, but it Mm -hmm. turns out we're much more motivated by habit. So for example, if if you've used Tide detergent the last 50 times, you've bought it the last 10 years or, or, or something, we imagine that you become loyal to it you make this conscious decision that says, I should use Tide. It's not, it's actually much more your subconscious, that 95% of the iceberg that's below the the, the surface of the water. When you're walking down the detergent aisle, your subconscious is literally kind of screaming at you, (laughs) dump the Tide bottle in, dump the Tide bottle in, dump the Tide bottle in. If your hand goes to Purcell or, or some other detergent, it literally is saying, no, 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 no! Do not do that. Do not do that. We know this one. We're comfortable with this one. Don't do that. So that's dominant. So all these people prior to COVID had this habit of getting up in the morning, shower, changing, get, get dressed for work, getting on the subway, getting on the bus, getting on the train, getting in the car, and driving to work. Uh, working in the office that was that was comfortable. You know, doing the same thing back and that habit then becomes sort of unthinking. That's the most comfortable thing to do. Thinking about another job, thinking about another career, the subconscious is going to say to you, whoa, 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 wait, 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 don't, don't do that. We're comfortable doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. COVID interrupts that it's forced. So nobody blames the, anybody for it. Even the subconscious doesn't, it's sort of like this is force majeure. And then you, then you have to work remotely. So that's the thing. But after two years of working remotely, what do you think that remote location becomes to your subconscious the office. Mm. That is the office, and you're totally comfortable with the routine: getting up, things some coffee, going to your, you know, kind of basement or your sun room or your spare bedroom or wherever you've set up your your home office. That's now habit, right? Mm. And then somebody phones you up and says it's time to come back to the office. The subconscious does not hear that at all. The subconscious hears, they want you to work remotely. So the new remotely (laughs) is your old, is your old office. Uh. And what happens, what happens when you do that to somebody's habit, typically, if you think about habit, when you have a habit of doing anything, it's like you have a hundred yard dash race with your habit and let's say three other alternatives. It is literally like habit gets to start at the 80 yard line mm. and the three alternatives start at the start line. The gun goes off. Ching. <laughs> Who wins, Jeff?
0: I think, I think habit wins. strolls across.
1: <laughs> yeah. Habit strolls across the line and, 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 and wins handily. Mm. If you break the habit, habit goes back to the starting line with the alternatives. That's the Great Resignation, in a nutshell, mm. the Great Resignation is companies taking an asset which they have is the habit of their employees to be working for them, mm. and saying I'm going to break the habit associated with that work, and people are taking that back to the starting line and saying, well, you know, I could get another a job here locally in Greenwich or or whatever New Jersey, or I could be a gig economy person, or I could take some time off. And all those things have a fair chance against continuing to uh, employment. One a- answer to your your question that's super important, and it's, I'm gobsmacked at just how dumb companies are being about about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they are taking their huge advantage and literally lighting a match to it, uh, and then saying, "There's a fire." how the hell did that start? <laughs> right? Right? So one thing they have to understand is the power of habit and they have to help their employees develop a completely new habit, which is going into the, that's a completely new habit. It is gone from, from, from history and they're not. If they do it by fiat, they're going to get the great uh, uh, resignation and they got to get it. So that's part of the, your answer. The other part of the answer is attracting and retaining and motivating talent. The model there is is that in the talent economy, it's pay. It's You have to spend most of your time thinking about how to structure pay to get talent to come and work for you. And I would be the last to say pay is irrelevant, but mm-hmm. it is nowhere near as important as managers uh, make it out to be. Mm-hmm. Um, what talent cares about, and I would argue every employee cares about, is being treated as an individual. Whenever you take a person and treat them as a class, now we focus more on treating as a, a, a bad class. You know, we mm-hmm. consider that bad. How could you treat them, them? Oh, they're just manual workers. We don't have to care about them at all. That <laughs> is considered bad. And it is. But it is equally ineffective to treat every... Well, you're an executive vice president, so here's the standard executive vice president package. And no, you can't do that because that's not in the executive vice president package. Talent hates that. What talent wants to do is be treated like an individual. They do not want their ideas to be dismissed. They don't want their path to be blocked. And they want to be patted on the back. People often think high-end talent doesn't need it. They know they're great, so uh, focus on on other people. And so, instead of focusing all your energy on trying to pay the most and try to solve talent problems with pay, which is what often happens, it's you know, Jeff. We really, I know that you'd like to move on from running this business unit, and you'd like an international assignment. I I know that's the case, but right now we really need you here running this this business unit and we'll think about sometime maybe 3 to 5 years from now giving you an international assignment don't don't worry but in order to in order to keep you happy we're going to we're going to increase your long-term incentive plan by 30% and whatever mm. they think that that's going to make you happy because they're paying you way more for the same job mm. You know what Jeff's going to do?
0: Start looking for another job.
1: <laughs> Quit, yeah. And, and, and I would argue that, that, that more and more the Jeff in this story is quitting before finding another job. It's just mm-hmm. like, nope, nope, not on. You simply have to say to Jeff, Jeff, if that's what you're interested in, we're going to make it happen. Now, it may take six months or nine months, whatever, but we're going to make it happen. We're going to talk about what international assignment that that's going to be, and we're going to infill behind you in your current, uh, current job, and they won't whine and complain about how hard it is to find somebody to replace mm-hmm. you in your, your, your current job. Mm-hmm. That's managing talent, not managing their compensation structure.
0: Well, related to this, Roger argues uh, that leaders have been approaching knowledge work all wrong, and that they should organize knowledge work around projects and not jobs. Roger, how would this work exactly? How would how would it benefit both organizations and employees?
1: Well, it would work not unlike it works at deloitte or accenture or mckinsey or boston consulting group and last time i checked these are not tiny companies (laughs) accenture and deloitte are 50 billion dollar companies mckinsey's 10 or 12 billion dollar companies and those companies or movie studio and those companies everything is organized around a project your job if you're a mckinsey consultant Your job is whatever project you're currently working on. And Mm -hmm. what you know about that is that project will come. It'll sort of ramp up to something super busy and all-consuming. It'll ramp down and then it'll go away sometimes forever because you're done. You've accomplished the, the thing. That is actually the life of all the knowledge workers in all the office towers, if you asked, mm-hmm. the if you just went into you know any any company, you went you went into uh, I don't know somebody, J P Morgan Chase in in one mm-hmm. of the Manhattan office towers, and say, what's your life? Like, do you do the same thing every day of the week, every week of the month, every month of the year? Like you have the same, like, can I look at your calendar and they'll give you their outlook (laughs) calendar and you'd say, yes, but this is kind of like different every week. Yep. You look like you have a Tuesday morning meeting at 10 o'clock that looks the same every, every uh, week, but everything else is is different. Like what's your job? Mm. And then the person will probably give you their title and, and you say, but how come is so different kind of every, mm. every week? And, and and now I've analyzed the last two years of your calendar and you've got stuff as, as recently as like six months ago that never appears again. And what you'd find is the person actually performs projects that come and go, but we've wedged that into a flat job description that says, well, you're VP marketing as if that's if that's one thing, right? And the reason for doing that was that that's how factories are organized, right? You are right. the number three station on this assembly line, and you come in and do the same thing every hour of the day, every day of the week, every week of the month, every month of the year. And so we just sort of adopted that because it used to be that most jobs were in the factories, whether they were a product factory or service factory, and you had these little things on top of them called office towers. Now the office towers. <laughs> (laughs) for almost all organizations are bigger than the the factory. And we just adopted that. And so what happens is that we tend to act like a public utility, right? Like a, Mm -hmm. uh, like electric utility and say, what's the hottest day of the year where everybody's got their air conditioners going, or what's the coldest day if you're in Edmonton the year, Mm -hmm. and we need to have this much capacity for the peak load and, uh, all the, all the rest of the capacity that we put online is, is wasted. Well, because projects are lumpy and they come and go, whenever somebody is really stressed out, we say, oh, we have to add a person. And so I believe that by taking a lumpy project world that's in the office hours and assigning them flat jobs, we've created all sorts of excess capacity. It's the best possible thing in the world for consulting firms, because typically when there's some big project that comes in, oh, we've decided to acquire that company and we need to do a bunch of post-merger acquisition. And so we've got 100,000 employees and they've got 50,000 employees and we need 30 employees to do this project. Despite having 150,000 people, you can't free up 30 to do the project. So you phone up McKinsey and say, can you do this uh, for us? Mm. And the reason is they all are trapped into these flat jobs when a big project comes along. And that's why I believe that all these project-oriented companies, the professional service firms have grown so much is because the model in companies of how you organize knowledge work is just plain Wrong.
0: Yeah, I think about the last job that I had. It's been nine years ago now, uh, but it's a job I worked for thirteen years, and titles changed five or six times throughout that time. But every bit of it, and the jobs before that, every bit of it was a series of projects. projects. That, that's really what it was. We just weren't looking at it that way. I think of my jobs in and before broadcasting in the music industry, and, and it was a series of. Album releases, you know. Sure, sure,
1: yeah. And then it's gone. Like it's yeah. a- it's actually in, in that business, it's gone forever. The album is released; it's mm. out there. You don't do it again. Yet, yet it's it's assumed as if your job is the same uh, all the time. Mm. And so, I would rather, in in whatever your 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 uh, record company was that you're working working with, I would rather have people with titles like a McKinsey title, engagement manager right? Mm-hmm. Launch manager. And I have 10 launch managers mm-hmm. in, uh, in the company. And I just say, okay, this artist that we've, that we've, you know, the head for a while is going to do a new album. Jeff, you're the launch manager, that's a project, build a team uh, to do that. And we understand that Jeff is kind of gone. We can't bug him for other stuff and and whatever. He's going to do that and be uh, completely consumed by that as of launch date, or maybe like, I don't know, three, three months after the album comes out, Jeff will be entirely free. And we can be thinking about what project would he be great for thereafter. That would be a way more effective way. And it would make, and I, in my view, it would make your life more fulfilling because the way it sort of works now is that you kind of feel like projects are taking you away from your job. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, Oh, I'm so busy on this project. And it's almost like a negative, right? And you almost want it to be gone. So you can go back to your job. Like you're, you're brainwashed into sort of thinking that (laughs) as opposed to thinking, this is what I, this is what I am. I'm this project guy. I do projects. Uh, and at the end of a launch, you can say to yourself, that was an awesome project. I had a great team, or you can say, you know, it was almost an awesome launch, but you know, I should have staffed up. I needed a kind of an on the ground PR person in, I don't know what England for the, for, for the, for the launch there. And next time, next time I do one, I will know that. And I'll, I'll be even, even better at it. You'll start to conceptualize your world in a way that is more consistent with how your world actually operates.
0: I've got a friend, Dan Miller is his name. He was the first ever guest on this podcast, uh, among other Ah. books, uh, wrote a book called 48 Days to the Work and Life You Love, some others. New York Times bestselling author. And he once said to me, he said, Jeff, I believe college degrees should come with expiration dates uh, for most of them, about five years, because it's about that long before they're no longer relevant. That's his opinion. I happen to agree. <laughs> yes. As a former dean, I want, I want to know what's your take on MBA programs in particular and whether or not you believe they're properly preparing students to, to lead organizations.
1: No. <laughs> if, a, if you want a short answer, if you want a longer <laughs> answer, I can give you more. One, on your and Dan's view, I agree wholeheartedly. Mm. And uh, when I became dean, I instituted something called lifelong learning. Ah. Where I, where I said we were going to every year do a recall like i use the auto industry thing we're going to we're going to recall you and give you all the important new kind of knowledge that we're now teaching this year that we weren't teaching last year and so if you come back to lifelong learning every year you will be up to date we will kind of be able to certify you're up to date just like we certify you came in for the recall and got the muffler fixed or whatever you know whatever <laughs> flaw flaw yeah. in 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 the in the uh in the vehicle i'm Sympathico entirely with uh, with that that view. It was one of the many things that the Rotman School, I mean, I was a nutty dean, to be sure. When I think <laughs> back on it, I just think, how did they even put up with me? But everybody said, well, this is a really stupid idea. This is going to fail. Uh, and I and I did it did it anyway. And and literally, you know, it became hugely uh, successful. I think seventy people showed up at the first the first one, but we were soon up up to getting kind of approaching a thousand. Then all these graduates of other schools said. We want to be able to come too. And we didn't charge anything for it. So I said, this is free. This is, this, this is like an extended warranty. And so the, the guy who, who was responsible for running it for me came to me and said, listen, we got all these people who want to come to it. My first reaction, this is this sort of integrative thinking kind of thing. My first reaction was, no, that would spoil it because you have to go to Rotman to be able to get the benefit of lifelong learning. And if, if the graduates of our competitive schools can just hop on that gravy train, well, that would be bad. But then I rethought it and I said, now here's a thought. These Rotman grads who are getting this for free don't have a real sense of the value of this. There's no way to sort of put a number on the value. It's all a feel.
0: No skin in the How game. How about right? this?
1: Yeah. How about this? If you're not a Rotman grad, you can come to a Rotman Lifelong Learning for a thousand bucks, it was a thousand bucks for a day. So really kind of in the business school, kind of this kind of thing, quite, quite expensive. And that way you're sitting there for free. If you're a Rodman grad, lucky you, Mm -hmm. or you've paid a thousand bucks and the person paying the thousand bucks is not going to be mad at the Rodman person. They're going to be like, well, you're smart. Uh, (laughs) You went to the right school. So we did it. And sure enough, we were able to fund ever more extravagant. Lifelong learning days. Wow. I, th- I think we soon got uh, like three hundred thousand dollars of of uh, revenue from this, so we could have a better venue and better food and pay speakers. Nice. You kind of get them more luxuriously to, to to come and the and the like. So wow. I agree. I agree entirely with you. Are MBA programs uh, readying people for the world? No, they are not. Uh, And I, and I probably am too severe a critic of MBA education. I tried to change it and made some strides, but boy, it's hard. It's the hardest thing I ever did. The biggest, biggest, biggest problem is that MBA programs are oriented towards analysis, how to rigorously analyze any issue rigorously analyze a HR issue, an operations management issue, a finance issue, an accounting issue, analyze, 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 analyze. And there's this giant, giant blind spot, uh, which is that the guy who invented analysis, Aristotle, 2,500 years ago, the great Mm -hmm. Greek philosopher, one of the most important thinkers and the most important thinker in in the entire history of science, invents the scientific method. Uh, because he's interested in how can uh, how can humankind understand the cause of an effect that we see so we see some effect we well we'd like to know why that's that's happening and so he says use this method which is you kind of rigorously collect data just to to be able to come to, to come to that and i mean we sort of went into the dark ages and, and everything was sort of screwed up for a while and re-emerged in the scientific revolution and and the scientific method is attributed 2,000 years later to Bacon, Newton, Descartes, Galileo. But all they did was formalize Aristotle's uh, kind of method of analyzing data rigorously to be able to determine the cause of the given effect. That's all good, except the great philosopher who invented science says um, that, that there's actually this method is only appropriate for one part of the world. And I illustrate it often by taking a pen and saying, if I let go of this pen that's in my hand, what will happen to it? It'll fall. It fell five minutes ago, a year ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, if there were ballpoint pens 100 years ago. We can be pretty sure it's going to fall 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 100 years uh, from now, because gravity is kind of not going to go away. Mm -hmm. So that's what he termed as the part of the world where things cannot be other than they are. And that part of the world, he said, analyze, 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 and be able to come up with the cause of the given effect. But he, 2,500 years ago, warned, he said, there's another part of the world. And it's the part of the world where things can be other than they are. And so I illustrate that with a smartphone. In 1999, how many of those were there on the planet? Answer zero. Mm. First one came out in 2000. It's 22 years later. How many are there on the planet now? Last time I looked, 4.4 billion. Mm. And now my smartphone was within an arm's length. And as you know, if your smartphone isn't within an arm's length of you, you start getting the hives or the cold uh, chills or or the (laughs) like. It's changed our life completely. Everything we do is changed utterly, completely by that device. That's what Aristotle referred to as the part of the world where things can be other than they are. Mm. And you know what he said about that part of the world? Do not use my scientific method. And... You could ask why was he so like it wasn't like eh, eh, said eh, don't don't it's like telling your kid do not touch that hot element on the stove <laughs> right like it was unambiguous don't do it right. why well the, the answer is there is no data about the future if you think about it at the time of analysis people say what if you collected uh, uh, data you know, then you're collecting into the future. No, no, no. At the time you try to make sense of that data, it's all in the past. Otherwise you wouldn't have it to analyze or make right. sense of it. So it's, it's sort of tautological. Um, and you're taught in statistics 101, you're taught if, if you're going to make any inference to the phenomena that you are attempting to understand, the data you use to make that inference has to be representative. So you can't say, well, we want to figure out how people think about, you know, what I don't know, whatever colors colors of their cars, and so let's go out and interview a, a thousand men. No, that's an unrepresentative sample. Let's uh, a thousand really young people. No, that's not representative. So your sample has to be representative of the phenomenon or any inference you draw from it, any conclusion you reach from it will be deeply flawed in, unfortunately, ways you have no idea how Mm -hmm. it's flawed. So you're told in statistics 101, which you take at business school, never, 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 never do analysis with an unrepresentative uh, sample. So if you're thinking about the part of the world where things can be other than they are, your assumption, if you use analysis to understand it, is the future, will be identical to the past. Mm. So our sample from the past is representative. So our sample that says smartphones smartphone, it's not gonna be important, nobody uses them, mm. right? right. And, and that would be legitimate analysis how many people here think their smartphone is really important? <laughs> Nobody, because <laughs> they don't even know what it is. Then 4.4 billion people weigh in and say, well, you know, actually, I don't even have much money. You know, I'm in India or something, but I have to have a, smart, uh, a, a smartphone any, anyway, because it's, it's fundamentally important in my life. You can never figure that out. In fact, if you do analysis in the part of the world where things can be other than they are, you will convince yourself they can't. And This is the big problem, Jeff, in corporate innovation. I don't know with your guests, if you've had this, the thing that CEOs probably are most discouraged and disappointed about is the pace and level of innovation in their organization. Mm. But the reason is, right? When like the senior executives will do this, see, I've watched CEOs do this. They'll say, Jeff, Jeff, you're the head of R&D. Jeff, that's a very intriguing idea for a brand new product. Intriguing, intriguing. (laughs) Now, if you can just, come back with the analysis that shows that this will succeed, then, then I'd be very excited about doing it. <laughs> all right. Now, unfortunately, there was this really smart dude, Charles Sanders Peirce, one of the greatest American philosophers of all time, Dewey's and James's contemporary, only probably smarter, pointed out that no new idea in the history of the world has been proven in advance analytically. <laughs> now think on that for a minute. Yeah. So when I ask you, as CEO, your CEO, to just prove your new idea. I think I'm just making a reasonable request that I was taught to make in business school. You, mm-hmm. you know, you only make decisions based on good analysis, but I'm giving you a task that has never been accomplished by any human being anywhere on the planet mm-hmm. at any time in human history. And so what do you do? One, you either go back and cry yourself to sleep at night and forget <laughs> about it, or you scale back so that your innovation is almost exactly like what we're doing now, a small nuance. And then you can have lots and lots of proof that that, that that should should work. But this is where models come in again. My model is I must make sure all decisions are made rigorously analytically. The flaw is that only works in one part of the world. And the flaw is that somebody else is going to invent the future in my industry Because they are doing what Aristotle said. What Aristotle said is in in that part of the world where things can be other than they are. The the rigorous method for determining what to do is to imagine possibilities and choose the one for which the most compelling argument can be made. Isn't that fun? And he said the other thing that's neat about it. He said in that part of the world, the job of human beings is to be the cause of the effect they want to see
0: yeah and i think what you're what you're ultimately saying if i'm parsing it correctly is that as leaders we need to sort of lean into discomfort, we need to feel uncomfortable with our uh, strategic plans. Or maybe I'm I'm drawing an inference that isn't there, but I think it's I think it's related. Um, yeah. And and I think you say in your book, if uh, if you're if you are comfortable uh, with your strategic plan, then it isn't very good. And it, it reminds me of a quote uh, I recently read that said, "You if your dream doesn't scare you, it's too small."
1: I think that's right. I think those are all. You're right. I think the inference you've drawn is absolutely right. Those things are all all connected. We are comfortable with analyzing the past in part because we've been taught it in business schools for 50 years Mm. that's the only legitimate way to make a decision that makes us comfortable but it also will cause us not to do new things right and so and so that 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 makes you very comfortable and and I, th- I think imagining possibilities is not something that is taught. It is taught. And I, and I had this really fascinating conversation this week in Denmark with a tech entrepreneur with a design school background. And I asked him about it. And he said, yeah, for four years, all they did was give us a, give us a challenge where we had to create something new and we had to figure out how to do that. And I was just thinking, oh, my God. <laughs> that is so at odds with, uh, with an MBA program. So at odds. Mm. If you're asked to do that once in a two-year MBA program, that would be a lot. And so we're training people to be good at analyzing the past. And all you can do, according to Aristotle, is hone and refine what currently exists optimize what currently exists, then you got to hold your breath and hope that somebody doesn't invent the future, you know, over top of your head and and, and absolutely wipe you out. And that's what uh, business schools do. No, I don't think design schools are perfect, uh, either. Although I think the design schools that are kind of really smart are the ones that have said, we will work with local business schools to get our students to be allowed into some of those classes. So they learn a bit of finance. How do you think about finance, uh, accounting and the like that, mm-hmm. that prepares them better for taking their idea and making a business out of it. But business education is, is going to have to reinvent itself, I think, or slowly wither away. But do you realize, Jeff, 20% of all degrees, bachelor's, master's, PhDs, 20% of all degrees given out in America are business. Oh, I didn't know it was that high. Wow. It's gigantic. Hmm. It's as big an infrastructure as all the hard sciences put together and engineering. It's the biggest educational, higher educational infrastructure in America. And so it has—it does have huge influence. And if the model is, Jeff, you are a bad manager unless every decision you make is based on data. That has an
0: implication. Mm-hmm. 600,000 graduates per year. They must all be starting podcasts because last I checked, the business podcast category is also one of the largest of all the podcast categories. So there's some, there's some, maybe a correlation there. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah,
1: no, it, it's, I mean, it's that big in some sense because it has to feed a gigantic infrastructure of, of businesses is it, huge.
0: I, w- I want to take some time to talk a, a bit about execution before we wrap. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and by the way, Roger divides the book into, into four parts. Uh, part one on context, part two, making choices, part three, structuring work, and part four, key activities. And this is where he gets into execution. What do you mean when you say execution is not the key to a strategy's success? How how should we think about execution if it's not the key?
1: We shouldn't think about it, period. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, my, I guess my criteria for whether something is a thing or not is that if you can de- uh, define it, as different from the other things that already have uh, have a life and a definition, and so what I think of strategy is and and few people would disagree fundamentally with me on on this strategy is the act of making choices under uncertainty, competition, and constraints. It, it, you know, you can't be sure. So there is uncertainty. There are going, always going to be con- competitors out there and you don't have unlimited resources. So you have to say, given, those, the, given the uncertainty, the competition and the constraints, I'm going to do X versus, versus Y. Mm. Okay. Then there's a general view, this general model, because it sort of makes kind of kitchen logic sense, right? Which is that, well, now that you've made those choices, somebody has to go execute them. And I say, okay, fair enough. Something does have to happen next right if i especially if i'm the ceo of a giant like dow jones 30 type company i'm i'm certainly not going to do everything uh, myself so s- something else has to has to happen and we've called it uh, execution we have to execute my strategy and so i would say okay i'm game to call that execution if it's different from what i what i just did if it's fundamentally not about choice so i don't know i'm i'm the Head of Coca Cola, and Jeff, you're the head of the juice business. And I say, here's the, co- the you know uh, prop, uh, Minute Maid gigantic orange juice uh, uh, business, and there's somebody else who's uh, head of bottled waters, running Dasani and and whatever. So I say, to, to Jeff, here's my strategy. You execute it. So it must mean that Jeff, you're not making choices under uncertainty, competition, and constraints. Otherwise, you know the logical thing to do would be to say. Jeff, you've got to do the Minute Maid strategy now. <laughs> um, so the question is, are, are there any choices to make? Right? And I mm-hmm. think the answer is, there sure as hell are. How do we compete with Tropicana? How do we treat with mixed juices? How do we uh, globalize the brand to a greater extent? Wow, wow, wow. Mm-hmm. Now, those choices aren't unconstrained in the sense that I've said, I'm the the big boss of Coca-Cola. I've set out a strategy. Here's what we're trying to accomplish as as Coca-Cola. So they're constrained, but they still look remarkably similar to mine. So what I think would be smarter for me to say than go execute my strategy, which you, Jeff... No, is just a pile of crap, right? The, you know, The, the notion that you don't have to make any choices, uh, you've got to make a bunch of choices. They look remarkably similar to mine. So you have mm-hmm. to just suck it up and say, okay, I, I know my boss is delusional, but I'm going to act like I'm just, quote, executing. And of course, what's going to happen, if things don't go well, it's all because of my "Quote bad execution. If things go great, uh, it'll be because of his awesome strategy. So you're put in a no-win situation, and right. it's delusional. And and some people say yes, 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 Roger. But it is different. What Jeff's doing is different. He's under constraints. You, Roger, have created the Coca-Cola strategy, and then I roll my eyeballs and say, oh, so th- let me get this straight. I'm unconstrained." I'm unconstrained by the capital markets, the regulatory framework, my board of directors, whatever, you know, also a heap of crap. We're both making choices under uncertainty, competition (laughs) constraints. So I would rather have it it be seen as I make the strategy choices that a CEO of Coca-Cola Limited are mine to make. Those are the choices that have been assigned for me to make. And then I say to you, Jeff, these are my choices. And I'm now chartering you to make a set of strategy choices for the Minute Made business that are consistent with and reinforcing in my choices. Go do it. That's your job. You're making hard choices just like I'm making. I'll help you if you want. Come check back with me anytime you want. But you're making a set of choices. And then you might ask the question, well, if Jeff is running Minute MinuteMade and he's got somebody running... Minimate in Asia, Minimate in Europe, and he's got somebody somebody running the pure juice products and the mixed juice products. Are you telling them to execute your strategy? Mm. Because they don't make any choices either. No, you're chartering a set of choices to them and saying, here are the choices that you need to consider and make make them consistent with mine, et cetera. In my view, a company that says it's chartering choices, strategy choices all the way down Mm. is going to be way more effective. Than a, a company that says strategy happens at the top and everybody else is executing because one, it's just factually wrong. Uh, and two, it creates this sort of delusional, crazy kind of uh, structure that, that I think, it's bad for everybody involved.
0: Mm. You know, as you were talking, I realized, and I'm, I'm looking over here to my left, to upcoming guests, uh, two in particular who will precede you, next week's guest and the one after that, a Harvard professor and then a Yale professor, uh, Ranjay Gulati. Oh, yeah. Who's got a new book out? Uh, Barry Nailbuff uh, is the other. Don't know if you know Barry or not. Yeah, and, yeah
1: I know Barry and I know Ranjay just a little bit.
0: Somebody, and, and you mentioned Coca Cola, it made me think of Barry because he and a former student created a company called Honesty, yes, and sold it to Coca Cola. So there's all these these connections here uh, between you and and these these future guests and the things that you're saying. Yes. And,
1: Those are both really really bright, thoughtful uh, thoughtful guys uh, too. So you're, you've got uh, you've got a great a great lineup coming up.
0: Well, they, they're opening for you essentially. Uh, <laughs> <Is that? laughs> First Ranjay, then Barry, and then you. So so they're your opening act. We'll put it that way. Well, there's that. I think that's good. <laughs> I think that's good. <laughs> well, anything else from uh, the book, Roger, that I haven't asked you about, you want to make sure we we know about or walk away with before I let you go?
1: Well, the, I guess the only, the only thing I would say is what the book is centrally most about is I want the reader... To take ownership of their models. so what what I hope is it's a it's it can be a bit of a wake-up call that you mm-hmm. might be being owned by your models. You're owned by your model. Mm-hmm. If you use it and it doesn't work, and you still keep using it. It's like the mafia owns you. Right? right? You'll do what I want, even if we don't uh, do something good for uh, uh, for you. I'd rather have them take ownership, which is to say a model has to work. If it doesn't, maybe give it a second chance, if not, then say, maybe I need a new model. And if people mm. would do that more, I think they'll be happier and more successful. So that's the, that's the overarching uh, theme of the book. It's an optimistic book, as hopefully all my books uh, are, because I believe people can mm. take ownership of their models and be more effective and happier.
0: Well, optimistic it certainly is. A New Way to Think, Your Guide to Superior Management Effectiveness. His name is Roger L. Martin. The book is out on Harvard Business Review press as of May the 3rd. Check it out. Roger, thank you so much for being our guest today and coming back a second time. I really appreciate you being here and all that you shared today.
1: Well, it was my pleasure. I'd be happy to do a third time.
0: You know, as I was preparing for my interview with Roger, I was reading an article on Substack written by the Category Pirates. Christopher Lockheed is a part of that group. Uh, He's also been a guest on the podcast. And I can't remember the topic they were writing about. Uh, It had something to do with thinking. And right off the bat, they mentioned Roger Martin being the expert in this area. You want to pick up this book, A New Way to Think, Your Guide to Superior Management Effectiveness. And I think you'll be glad that you did. Find the link to this book and more on Roger at read to lead slash four two six for episode four twenty six. And remember, if you want to be notified the next time I launch a note making mastery cohort, which will be coming later this year, you can get on that notifications list when you go to read to lead slash list. L I S T, read to lead slash list. We're actually kicking off the first one ever tonight, June seventh. 2022, And we'd love to have you in the next one. Readtoleadpodcast.com slash list. Next week in the podcast, we'll be chatting with Bob Lodick who has a new book out called Simple Money, Rich Life. That'll be followed by John David Mann, the co-author of The Go-Giver with Bob Berg. He's got a new book out with his wife, Anna Gabriel Mann, called The Go-Giver Marriage. And then we round out June with Noah St. John and his book, Millionaire Affirmations. Not affirmations, But affirmations, it's a new word he's coined. We'll find out more about that when he's here. All of that and more is coming up on the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks again for being here this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead.